0: Mark chapter 10 is where we'll be this morning. I must say at the outset that there's a misprint in the bulletin and it is all my fault. It says we're going through verse 16, we're not going to get there. Okay, so we're going to we're going to cover 1 through 12 and I'm already anxious about next week's sermon and how I'm going to fit verses 13 through 16 with 17 through 33 but we're, that's tomorrow's worries. We're not going to worry about those today. Um, so, so we're going to look at, at, at verses 1 through 12 of Mark 10. And, and before, I'm going to read them um, for us in a second. If you don't have a Bible, there there should be one on the, the pew back in front of you. Um, so so we'd, we'd love for you to follow along. Hopefully, if you, if you haven't been here often, hopefully you'll learn that you're going to be somewhat lost without your Bible. So a lot of the times in, in my talking, this sermon, I'll, I'll say, look at this verse, look at this verse. I I want to stay as close to the text as possible, um, so if you come to hear my thoughts about a whole lot of different things, you're not going to hear them. Hopefully, you're disappointed. Um, but, but so we'll look at it in a second. But before we look at them, let me let me kind of set the stage. Um, the the sermon title is the countercultural kingdom of God, and I've I've titled it that way um, intentionally because if if you read ahead and you looked at verses one through twelve, or even if you're look, looking at it now and you see the the subtitle or, or the the um, the, the passage heading, um, it probably says something about Jesus and divorce. Well, I titled the sermon Countercultural Kingdom of God because marriage and divorce is not the main purpose of this passage. Okay, the main issue is the distinctiveness of the disciples. So following Jesus, whether it's in how one thinks about divorce or or something else, um, disciples are to be countercultural. Citizens in the kingdom of God live counterculturally. There's a, a cost to following Jesus. Now remember, the context of Mark helps us understand this. It helps us come at this with, with the right frame of mind. We, we've been talking about the past several weeks the cost of following Jesus. We've looked at the marks of discipleship, and, and this passage follows right on the heels of, of that. So that's right in line with the context. And so in our passage, Jesus is going to make claims. He's going to teach things that, that shock the listeners and the disciples because because they go against the norm. They're countercultural. And so part of our job is as we get to the end of this, we'll, we'll ask ourselves, well, what does countercultural discipleship look like in our world? So that's what, that's what we'll do hopefully later. But, but the countercultural kingdom of God. So hopefully you're there in Mark 10. If you follow along, I'll read verses 1 through 12 of Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. And he left there, that's Jesus, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. Verse 2, and Pharisees came up to him in order to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Verse 10, And in the house the disciples asked Jesus again about the matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Well, the, those are the 12 verses that we're, we're going we're gonna to labor through, we're going to travel through this morning. So I've broken it down, the, the, the first 12 verses, into kind of three subheadings. So, so the main idea is, is Jesus and marriage. And then the three subheadings that, that will kind of travel through, verses 1 through 5, where we're going to see Jesus addresses a misunderstanding of Moses then secondly, in verses six through nine, Jesus goes back to marriage in the beginning. Okay, he, he goes all the way back to, to creation. And then in verses 10 through 12, we'll see when he's alone with His disciples, he addresses marriage, divorce, and adultery. So, so hopefully we'll, we'll leave this morning with, with a grasp on, on the purpose of, of these verses. So, so first, let's look at verses um, 1 through 12, Jesus and marriage. Now now before, before I, I, I look at verse one, Let me give you two pieces of background that that kind of helps understand this passage. So here's two kind of cultural background issues. So so the first that that helps us in in kind of understanding what's going on here is is that there is uniform agreement amongst the Jews, amongst the scribes and the Pharisees, there's uniform agreement that, that divorce was permissible. Okay, So the issue wasn't, can a man divorce or not? That was agreed that a man could. Okay, so that's the issue here, and that, that'll, uh, that'll affect how we understand the question of the Pharisees. They, they didn't really wonder whether a man could or not. The, the issue was what the proper grounds for divorce were. So, okay, everyone agrees a man can divorce his wife, but, but the, 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 the division came when, well, what are the proper grounds? Or what are the, the legitimate reasons for divorce? And, and this was all based on Deuteronomy 24. So, so we'll turn there in a minute. Um, but but Deuteronomy twenty four was was a mosaic law that that had to do with divorce, with this certificate of divorce, and and in twenty four, Deuteronomy twenty four, we'll read it in, in a few minutes. Um, but but there's this 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 clause here. There's this phrase in in verse one that says that you know when a man finds um, a cause for divorce um, with his wife and, and he wants to send her away, the 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 wording of the reason, the proper reason, the legitimate grounds are if he finds indecency in her, then he's to give her the certificate of divorce and send her away. So, see, Deuteronomy 24, one says if there's indecency found, then you can divorce your wife, husband. Okay? Husband can divorce the wife uh, on the account of indecency. Now, the two, mains of, two main schools of thought, every commentary reader, you're going to mention these two, and they're, they're represented by, by the rabbis or the, the teachers who led... These schools, one was a more liberal school of thought known as the Hillel school. Okay, so so the more liberal meaning more broad, they would say indecency, that, that's a wide open interpretation. It could be burning food. I mean, literally, you find cases of a husband who says, the indecency that I found in my wife was she burnt dinner. Therefore I gave her the certificate of divorce and she's gone. Okay, so so that's that's the liberal view. Indecency, you can take liberties. If if you see another woman that's more attractive. That's an indecency in your wife. Divorce her. Okay, so that, that's the Hillel school. Okay, that, that's one side of the argument. The other, well, and f- let me just mention, hopefully you're, you're feeling this, imagine the effects of, of that teaching on the wives. Think about if you're a woman in that marriage whose husband can, can cast you off for any reason, for looking at him the wrong way. Imagine her sense of security This is something we we ought to consider when we think about marriage and divorce. Women, wives, were often viewed as as property, accessories to gain. And therefore, just accessories, Then they could also be disregarded. I don't need her anymore. I'll find another one, another another purse, another accessory, right? That's how they viewed wives. And so if a wife said something or did something that frustrated her husband, he was free to divorce her, no questions asked. Now, we're tempted to think, well, good for her, right? Who wants to be in that that marriage anyways? Well, that's true in one sense, but on the other hand, the reality is that she couldn't survive on her own. For her to be cast away from her husband, it was unlikely that she could make it in the world apart from a husband. So her life, her, her livelihood, her security depended upon this marriage relationship. And so when there's a general understanding that, that she could be cut off from something as for something as silly as burned food, she has no security, no, no confidence in this marriage relationship. This understanding of marriage was detrimental, demeaning to women. Which is why when Jesus says what he does, he's arguing for a view of marriage that, that actually elevates the rights of women. Right? He was a liberal in this sense. He argued for women's rights. It was contrary to the thinking of his day. And then the second school, the, it was called the Shemai school, it was a more conservative view, and they taught that that the indecency should only be understood as adultery. Okay, so they'd say, no, you can't you can't take these these frivolous reasons, but if, if a wife commits adultery, then you give her the certificate of divorce, which which I would argue is, is the better understanding for, for the, the comprehensive biblical teaching. But those were the two schools. So that, that that helps us think about the situation. The second bit of background before we get to verse 1 is is a bit of a reminder something that that we came across in Mark earlier. You remember John the Baptist? If you're with us in John chapter 6 or in Mark chapter 6, do you remember John the Baptist? Is he still alive as we get to this point in Mark? No, what happened to John? He lost his head. But do you remember why he lost his head? Do you remember there's this issue with Herod and Herodias, Herod's wife. Now, John had publicly criticized the marriage of Herod, this, this ruler. He criticized the marriage, and he said that their marriage was actually unlawful. That's what Mark records in Mark chapter 6. So Herod, this king, had fallen for Herodias, who somehow is related to him, but he falls for her. Both of them were currently married to other people, so before they get married, they divorce their spouses and marry one another. And John is saying, you can't do that. He's speaking out against their illegitimate Marriage And it was public. He had criticized and he had drawn the ear of Herodias. She didn't like him. She hated him. And in fact, she she was the source of his beheading. So it was John's views on marriage and divorce that cost him his life back in John 6. And that's important here because this area, this this is the place where the Herodians are probably here. And so that that helps us think about the passage. So, So now let's look at verse 1 of Mark chapter 10. Look down at verse 1. Jesus left where they were going, went to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. Okay, this is, this is John the Baptist territory. And, and crowds gathered to him again, and as was his custom, he taught them. Verse 2. The Pharisees came up in order to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So stop there. Do you see their question? Do you see their question? Is it lawful, Jesus, for a man to divorce his wife? Now, we know they, they believe it is. That's not the issue, but, but they're, they're trying to test him. Do you see that? Do you see in in verse 2, the Pharisees came up in order to test him? So the Pharisees aren't aren't just asking, well, well, tell us, to settle this conflict, Jesus. They don't care about the conflict. They are wanting to test Jesus. Whatever they're asking him, their intentions are are to trap him, to tempt him. When they come, I think they're they're hoping to trap him in a similar way that John the Baptist was trapped. They want him to make some proclamation about it's unlawful condemning Herod and and Herodias so they can get her to behead him also. You know the Pharisees, they're not fans of Jesus. They, they're looking for any way to get rid of him. And so I think they're hoping to get him to condemn divorce and remarriage in hopes that he also would fa- face the same end as John. And so they come asking him the question. Then look at, look at verse 3. He answers their question with a question of his own. Verse 3, he's answered them, What did Moses command you? What did Moses say, Jesus asked. If they want to know what's lawful... What better place to go than, than to Moses himself? Don't, don't worry about the rabbis, what they're teaching. What does Moses say? What does the law say? Verse 4, they answer. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So their assumption is, divorce is lawful, Jesus. It is. You can't say it's not, because Moses himself allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send his wife away. It must be lawful. Now, they misunderstand Moses now I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 24. We're going we're to look at this. Deuteronomy 24. So go all the way. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, number 5, the 5th book, all the way at the beginning. It's not the best place to start your Bible through the year plan, is it? Right? That's where most Bible reading plans stop, once you get to Deuteronomy. Um, but anyway, so Deuteronomy 24. So I'm going to read read these verses 1 through 4 of Deuteronomy 24. And so, so, so listen, then we'll make a few observations about how these Pharisees are misunderstanding Moses. So Deuteronomy 24, starting in verse 1, says, reads, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and she goes and becomes another man's wife... And the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce. This is the second one she's got. And puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So kind of confusing, a lot of his and ladders and hers Okay, but, but notice a couple things about, about these verses. What does Moses say about divorce? Does, does he comment on the lawfulness of divorce? Does Moses say that it's, that it's right or that it's wrong? Does, does he comment on the morality of divorce? He doesn't. This passage just presupposes divorce. So, so it, it, it's regulating how divorce is handled. So, so divorce is the assumed here, and Moses is writing this law to regulate how divorce is handled. And the main point, right, if you follow that, the main point is if a, woman gets, if a man sends a wife away and she marries someone else, for no reason can she go back and be his wife again. That, that's basically what Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 says. Once he divorces her, she's gone. She can no longer be his wife again. There's nothing to command divorce. It was actually a provision, a protection for the wife. As I mentioned, the situation was that a man could divorce a wife with no hassle, no inconvenience to them. Just, just say, all right, you're, you're out of here. Pack your bags. You're gone. And a divorced man was never at fault. He could just remarry, find a new wife, and go on with his life. The woman, however, a divorced woman, was, was defiled. She had no way to recover. And so Moses in Deuteronomy 24, knowing the hard hearts of Israel's husbands, says they must issue a certificate of divorce. They must, they must send her away with legal documentation. And once that happens, she's never coming back to you, husband. I mean, that, 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 that's the point that he's making. There's a finality to it. And, and this protects the woman, one, there's there's no hasty divorce. You, you gotta go. You gotta go to the judges or, or the rulers and, and get a certificate of divorce. And so you have a fight, you're out of here. Well, the office is closed. I'm gonna have to go tomorrow. The next morning you wake up, you're you're more clear-minded, right? That it, it prevents women from being cast off rashly, from hastily divorced. It also makes the husbands go through a legal process that deters a rash divorce. He had to be committed. Yes, I'm going through with this. And so Moses says that when a man decides to divorce his wife, he issues her this certificate. Now, what this does for the woman, you think, well, how does that protect the woman? Well, first, it it prohibits a a rash, a rashful divorce. But also, the wife with a certificate of divorce validates why she's been cast out. I'm divorcing you because you burnt my food. Okay, she has that on on her certificate of divorce. So, So another man will say, of course I'll marry her. I love my food burnt. Right? Or whatever the case. So so the certificate of divorce, there's no question, there's no ambiguity as to why she's been divorced. Also, she's protected from false accusations. So the husband is sent away. He can no longer come back and say, she committed adultery against me. She's defiled. Don't marry her. Right? He has to go through a legal process so that there's no false accusations. She's no longer considered defiled. She's then able... To remarry, which in this culture meant to survive. And so the requirement of certificate divorce enabled wives who had been unfairly cast out to remarry. So the Pharisees, as they read Deuteronomy 24, they think they've just proved to Jesus the the legitimacy of divorce. They actually only prove that they've misunderstood Moses. It's not a command to divorce. That's not what Deuteronomy 24 is. The reality is, in all of scriptures, divorce is never, never commanded no man was ever commanded to give a certificate of divorce. It was a provision to protect the woman. And so to use Deuteronomy 24 as a justification for no-fault divorce was to miss the context of the Old Testament, which is what Jesus points out. Look there at verse 5. You see down there at verse 5 how he responds. He said to them, Because of your hardness of hearts, Moses wrote you this commandment. The only reason that that's there is because men were taking advantage of women, and so God, through Moses, provides this protection, this, this way to, to care for the, the, the spouse, the divorced woman. In other words, the passage doesn't sanction divorce. It just makes provisions for it, which were only necessary because of the hardness of human hearts. And so the answer to the issue, the answer to the question of if a man can lawfully divorce his wife, Jesus says you have to go back further than Deuteronomy. You have to go back all the way to the creation account, go all the way back to the beginning. So look there at verse 6, Jesus responding to their questions and entering into this discussion. Verse 6, he says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. You've probably heard that at, at weddings. okay? That, that comes from Genesis. okay? Those are, those are actual references to the creation account. So Jesus goes further back than Leviticus to establish marriage norms. He goes all the way back to the first man and the first woman. And he says, quoting Genesis 2, that God made man and woman for the purpose of marriage, and in that marriage relationship, there's a divine union, a oneness. Do you see there in verse 8? Look at verse 8. The man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife, and what happens? The two become one flesh. This is marriage 101, right? There's a loss of individuality when it comes to marriage. Both spouses are lose themselves and become one so that the two become one they're joined then in verse nine probably one of the most important things that jesus says is what therefore god has joined together let not man separate and i don't think that jesus is talking about some random man right i think he's talking about the husband the husband let not man separate what god has joined together So when a man and a woman come together in marriage, no man may separate it. This is the pattern. This is the norm. This is the way that God created man and woman to function within marriage. God intended that the purpose of marriage should be unity and that the obligations of marriage should be taken seriously. Saying that that man cannot separate it provides the required safeguard against human selfishness, which always threatens to destroy marriage. The two become one, and one party can't destroy it, can't separate, it, let no man separate. Contrary to the thinking of the day, Jesus holds forth a view of marriage that is counter-cultural. Instead of giving in to the cultural norm and saying, Yep, yeah, man can discard it; it's lawful, he can divorce her, he can send her away. Instead of doing that, he goes back to the beginning in order to level the playing field. And says that in marriage, God makes two to become one. So if there's no longer one and another, there's two that have become One. One man and one woman for life. That's how God designed marriage. And any and every divorce cuts against God's intentions for marriage. By his citation of the creation account, Jesus implies that the original Edenic, the Garden of Eden will of God concerning marriage is both superior to the law of Moses and continues to be the proper guideline by which marriage should be conducted. Right? There, there's our model Genesis 1 and 2. That's, that's the pattern. That's to be followed when it comes to marriage. Which leads us to verses 10 and 12. So as we've seen before, after publicly teaching, the disciples are alone with Jesus. And when they're alone, they ask him again. Verse 11, well, verse 10, they, they, in the house, the disciples ask him again about the matter. They're asking, well, are you, you really mean what you said? Are you serious? So they ask him again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, Mark doesn't record the exact questions, but he clearly records what Jesus says. Right? Jesus isn't mincing words here, is he? Right? Are these shocking words? Right? Jesus is, is telling it like it is. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Now, I realize that, that you immediately want to go to the adultery part and ask, does he really mean that? There's all kinds of questions that opens up. Does Jesus really mean that? We want to know. We want to zoom in on the adultery part. But that misses the point. Notice what Jesus is saying. Look there at verse 11. Who is the guilty party in verse 11? Verse 11, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. So who's the one guilty of committing adultery in verse 11? The husband, the one who divorces his wife, is guilty of committing adultery against her. Who's the her? It's the the wife that he's married, that he's now divorced and gone and married someone else. He is guilty of adultery against her. This means, in Jesus' teaching, the guilty party is the husband. It may not seem like a big deal to us, but as Jesus is saying this, it would have been shocking. Jesus saying... It's quite remarkable. Here's what, what one commentator says. It's remarkable for in Israel, a man was generally considered an adulterer only when he had an extramarital sexual relationship with a married woman, and he was guilty of adultery, not against the wife, but against the husband of the woman. Okay, So he was only guilty if, if he did the bad deed, and he was guilty against, against the husband of the married woman. And so for Jesus to say that, that if, if he divorces and marries another, He's guilty of adultery against the one that he's left. Do you see how that just changes the whole whole view and perspective on divorce? Jesus is establishing the responsibility that husbands have in marriage. He does this by saying that divorcing one's wife and marrying another woman is on the same level as having an affair. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. man who divorces his wife in order to marry another is guilty. He is the one who's done something wrong wrong. Jesus is leveling the playing field in marriage. Both husbands and wives are responsible for the well-being of the relationship. Notice also who the offended party is. I mentioned this uh, just a second ago. The offended party, when a husband divorces and remarries, it's not the other husband. It's, it's the divorced wife. You see, her rights are being validated. She has been offended. She's been sinned against when her husband divorces her in order to marry another. And so Jesus calls men to account, saying men are guilty for offending their wives, the wives that they've discarded. Jesus makes them the object of concern, which is is foreign to this time and culture. The effect of Jesus' position forbidding divorce was to reject the notion that the wife was the man's property and to insist upon recognition of the woman's right in marriage based upon, Genesis 1, the original creation pattern. Which is why Jesus says what he does. He doesn't even mention an exception clause. He doesn't say, except for in this case, it says if a if a man, a husband divorces his wife and marries another, he is guilty of adultery. Adultery. He's intentionally shocking his disciples. They they must recognize the significance of marriage and the significance of divorce that comes with recognizing the significance of marriage. It's countercultural. Now let me just comment on, on verse 12 before we look at the three three applications. You see there, verse 12. Jesus switches the roles and makes the same charge. Do you see there in verse 12? He says, if she divorces her husband, marries another, she commits adultery. Do you see? It's just, it's just the same process, roles switched. Do you see that? As I've been maintaining in Jewish culture and practice, wives couldn't divorce their, their husbands. But in the Roman world, as, as Mark's letter is being, is being passed around, there were more rights for women. So, that, so it wasn't unheard of for a woman to divorce her husband. Case in point, Herodias And so Jesus, not wanting to over-elevate the rights of women and say, okay, now she has a no-fault clause in divorce, he says, no, she is held to the same standard that he is. Divorce is prohibited whether it's inhibited by the husband or the wife. Both parties are guilty when they divorce and remarry. And so Jesus, here in the privacy of this home with the disciples, he charges husbands who divorce their wives and wives who divorce their husbands? Both parties are responsible for maintaining the unity, the oneness. So let let me let me close with three applications how this applies to us. I've got three. How how this is countercultural in our day. First, we recognize the significance of marriage. We recognize the significance of marriage. Marriage is a lifelong relationship between one man and one woman. Marriage is significant, and the significance comes because marriage was designed by God in the beginning to be a lifelong relationship between one man and one woman. Do you see that? Our significance doesn't come from some cultural invention. It comes from God's Word that established marriage in the beginning. So we must affirm the significance of marriage. The creation account in Genesis establishes male-female lifelong monogamy as God's created order for marital relationships. Any other Sexual union is outside of God's purpose and will for human sexuality. This means that God's created order, God's intention for men and women contradicts the idea that a man and a man or a woman and a woman can be married. Okay, that, that, that's, that's clear. God's standard contradicts that. Same-sex marriage directly contradicts God's intention for human marriage. I don't think I have many issues with getting agreement in that, but in the same way, A man and a woman whose marriage does not endure so long as they both shall live also contradicts God's intention for human marriage. One man and one woman for life. Anything else is out of step with God's intention for human marriage. We cannot downplay the significance of marriage. It is God's design. Secondly, second application, we we have to recognize the significance of divorce. The significance of divorce. With, with understanding the significance of marriage comes the significance of divorce. If we want to value ma- marriage, we also have to understand that, that to break that apart is important. It's a big deal. The significance of marriage divi- means that we can't downplay the signif- significance of divorce. Divorce is never good. It's never good. Now, I use that term carefully it's never good. Although sometimes necessary, divorce is always a result of human sinfulness, and it's never good. It's never the best. Though God allowed divorce, He never sanctioned it. I think it's fair to say, right, anyone here who's experienced divorce before can attest that it was not good. It's not righteous. It's not holy. It's not good. Maybe it was necessary. Do you see the distinction there? Sometimes it's necessary, but that doesn't mean that it's good. Maybe circumstances surrounding your marriage deemed divorce as the best option, not because it was good, but because it was the lesser of two evils. It was better to separate than to stay in that marriage for whatever reason. So it's never good. There's always collateral damage. If you know someone who's been divorced, ask them. Saying, would you recommend it? Right? It's not to be pursued as, as, as a good thing. And it's because it rips apart what God has designed to be joined together. I mean, I hope it's obvious, but let me just say, men and women were not created by God in order to be divorced, right? Divorce is a, a post-fall thing. You weren't created to experience divorce. It was never part of the plan. Marriages ought not to be broken. Now, I want to be careful here. I recognize every situation is unique, and I do think that Scripture makes exceptions to this norm. So. In other words, I think there are legitimate, biblical reasons for divorce. It doesn't change anything I've said. It's never good. It's never part of God's plan. But, but I think there are some times when that is the lesser of two evils. Mark's emphasis is not on the exceptions. Rather, he's making the point that marriage is intended to be between one man and one woman for life. This is the norm, the expectation. Marriage ought not to be broken. Cases where it is, the cases of divorce, breaking of this covenant union, ought to be the exception. It ought to be the exception. And this is one place where we as Christians ought to be countercultural. Marriage ought to be held in high regard. Divorce ought to be rare. I mean, among Christians, it ought to be rare. Divorce isn't a right to be pursued. It's, it's a last resort. And so if you aren't married here this morning, hear this. Marriage is not always pleasant. Marriage will not marriage cannot complete you. Finding the right spouse won't satisfy your deepest desires. That that's not what marriage was created for, so don't look for it to do that. Marriage in this world will always be plagued by sin and selfishness. On both sides of the aisle, husbands and wives, both parties bring sin into the relationship. So, so unmarried, think rightly about marriage. Have realistic expectations. Divorce ought to be deleted from your v- vocabulary as you think about entering into marriage. Right? Don't even think about it. It's off the table. When you're entering into marriage, divorce is not in your vocabulary. As you're deciding to marriage, if you already think about divorce, you shouldn't get married. And that should be cause for concern. If you're married, if you're married here, if you've been married for a number of years, if you're here, you've been married for, for 5, 10, 20, 50, 60 plus years... If you're here this morning, that's you, praise God. Praise the Lord as the church, both locally and at large, praise God for your countercultural witness. I mean, how rare to see a husband and wife together for decade after decade after decade. I mean, we recognize, I speak as a younger married person, we recognize that it hasn't been easy the whole time, okay? We, We recognize that. But you've given those of us behind you, those of us chasing you, right, a model to pursue. And so thank you for that. Continue steadfast in your example. Continue to lead by example as as age presses on. As age presses on, health concerns increase. Disease diagnoses increase. Life and health become a lot more fragile. So you married folks. You you know this. This is the reality you're living in. And so I'd encourage you, hold fast to one another in the midst of, of uncertainty, in the midst of disease. And suffering, continue continue to pursue the oneness that God's calling you to. Continue to set the example for us. To the married here, if you're married and, and your marriage isn't going so well, right? if your marriage is on the rocks, hear the warning of this passage, your marriage ought not to be broken. Let me say that to you. Your marriage ought not to be broken. Rather, your default ought to be perseverance, pressing in. You ought to work through it as a Christian. You don't have divorce as an easy way out. Divorce is never a good thing. So, so your marriage ought not to end. If you're in a marriage that you think is on the brink of divorce, if, if you've tried and tried and tried and you still think the only way out is divorce, come talk to me. I mean, I want to listen. I want to I help shepherd you through that situation. Evaluate things. I don't want you to be ashamed or scared to come talk to me. I have a pastor friend who more than once was made aware of members of his church who were divorced after it had happened. So the first time he hears of it, they come and say, oh, no, we're not married anymore. Right? Well, what good is a pastor? What can he do then? So don't let that be the case. I want to walk with you through it. And I may just say, I don't know. This is a hard situation. Let's pray. But please come talk to me. Don't don't make a rash decision apart from counsel of me. And if not me, if you don't feel comfortable, other godly people who are going to tell you the truth, not just what you want to hear. Right? Not your mom. She's going to tell you what you want to hear, probably. And then lastly, I know that there are some some here who have been divorced. Divorced and and not remarried or some divorced and remarried. And so let me make the final point of application that it's for everyone, but specifically for you. And that's number three, the grace of God. That's an application, the grace of God. Divorce isn't an unforgivable sin. Maybe you just need to hear that this morning. Your divorce, it's not an unforgivable sin. Discussions church culture surrounding marriage and divorce, it's often filled with contempt, condemnation, carelessness. You've probably felt those before. This shouldn't be. If you're here and you've experienced divorce, maybe maybe after the last two points of application, you're feeling the weight. You're discouraged or ashamed or guilty. Maybe you thought, well, should I have even remarried? What am I doing? Is my life ruined? Have I ruined everything? Maybe there's other questions running through your head. Let me just Make sure and proclaim to your listening ears that divorce is not the unpardonable sin. It's not. It is not. God offers free forgiveness of sins to those who are trusting in Christ. When we sing that Jesus paid it all, there's no asterisk for those divorced, right? Jesus paid it all, right? That, that's, that should be freeing to you if you feel the weight, if you feel the guilt. When, when the gospel is involved, there's always hope, always Always hope. as I mean, think about the woman at the well. Five times married. An adulterous woman, if there ever was one. And there, Jesus cares for her. He intentionally addresses her need and offers her water that leads to eternal life. He's not ashamed to be seen with a divorced woman. He's ministering to her need. She's not excluded. So maybe if you're here today, if you've experienced divorce, maybe you just need to hear, you're still welcomed at the table You're still accepted in Christ. If you're trusting in Christ, your past sin does not stain the white robes of righteousness that Christ has given to you. Don't be weighed down by guilt. Take heart. Be encouraged. And if you're in a marriage now, if you've been divorced, you're remarried, if it's your second, your third, your fourth, your fifth, whatever the case, if you're here, you can honor God with your marriage starting now. If you find yourself in a marriage, your first obligation is to seek to love your spouse and, and to give of yourself for him or for her. If things are bad, right, cast your cares on the Lord. There's always hope. Pray for God to change you, right? It takes hard work on your part to make a marriage work. Don't be concerned with your spouse's lack of effort. Pray for the Lord to change you and then, then pray for him to change your spouse. Honor the Lord in your marriage, if you've gone through a terrible divorce, this is the last thing I'll say. If you've gone through a terrible divorce, a divorce that, that tore your life apart, maybe you're thinking at that time, my life is over. Things are never going to be better, right? It's ruined. I'm, I'm ruined. And here you are maybe, maybe one year later, maybe five, maybe 25 years later. And for here, I, I hope that you recognize that, that God has been with you. God has been with you. God has been enough for you. There's a restoring power that comes to those who are trusting Christ. Divorce doesn't disqualify anyone from the kingdom of God. And so if you've been divorced, you've seen firsthand some of the dangers and the side effects. You've you've been in the war on the front lines. And so consider your experience, your life, as as a means to encourage others. You've experienced things that, that others haven't. Don't be ashamed of your past. Think about your past as an opportunity to help others. You've gone through something for the good of someone who I haven't met yet. Think about ways that you can encourage them. We ought to be men and women who are big on grace and forgiveness. Not because other people need it from us, but because we're dependent upon it from God. Divorce isn't the unpardonable sin. All sins find covering in the, at the payment in the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, I thank you for sending your son who is the model of a faithful husband who gave his life for the sake of his unfaithful wife, us. While we were yet enemies and had turned away, he gave himself for us, sacrificially loved us. And so, Father, I pray you would encourage us with the gospel this morning. Would our marriages be shaped, would our perspective of our marriage be shaped by the gospel? And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.